From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, please visit lean.org. How does the emerging Industry 4.0 intersect with lean thinking? And how should smart companies adapt to this new Internet of Things? This is the question I've asked lean thinkers Jeff Liker and Jim Morgan, whose recent book, Designing the Future, explores related issues in depth. Moreover, Jeff will be reissuing his classic title, The Toyota Way, later this year, with revised and additional information. Welcome to LAI, the podcast of the nonprofit Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm your host, Tom Ehrenfeld, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode. Listen in on a great chat. I'm delighted to have Jim Morgan and Jeff Liker for our podcast today. We're going to talk about the issue of Industry 4.0 and the ways that lean thinking intersect, interfere, support, and so forth. And a great starting off point is just a simple quotation, Jeff from your new revised version of The Toyota Way, a book that's coming out in October, in which you say the simple sentence that Industry 4.0 is not a disruptive force that makes TPS irrelevant, but rather can be an enabler that builds on TPS culture and thinking. Can you just expand on that? Yeah, so as background, I do a uh, three-day masterclass on Toyota Way leadership and get directors, executives, most people are responsible for lean continuous improvement. And the question often comes up, regularly comes up, how does industry 4.0 affect lean? Sometimes the question is asked as, does industry 4.0 replace lean? So the implication is there's this thing called industry 4.0 and it's the next big wave. And if lean doesn't somehow get on the bandwagon, lean will become obsolete. And I was, as you might imagine, pretty skeptical about that. We also go into a Toyota factory as part of the course, and they'll ask that question to Toyota people like, are you ready for Industry 4.0? As if it's like a big tsunami wave coming, and if you're not prepared for it, it'll wash over you and destroy everything. And the Toyota people are very polite, and they say, we have been looking into it. We don't consider ourselves very advanced, but we're considering it and we're going to do some pilots. So they're very kind of cautious. Uh, and the reason for that, I think, is because they see it as possibly adding value to and integrating with their system of people, processes, and technology, not as something replacing thinking and their system. The cautiousness includes the Toyota idea that people should be thinking, challenging, observing, questioning, and improving the system. So they don't want to do anything that will kill Kaizen. If people start to depend on the system to think for them, then that would be the tsunami that would you know, ruin the Toyota way. So my response was sort of glib, saying that companies that are on the bandwagon of Industry 4.0 actually don't have experience with it. They don't know what they're going to do with it, but somehow they believe that if they don't get 
on the bandwagon. If they're not one of the first, they're going to get behind. I was pretty skeptical until last fall when I visited a Denso factory in Battle Creek, Michigan. And there was a guy named Raja who is an engineer and he's been with Denso for a long time. He knows Denso's version of, of lean in the Toyota way. And he's very excited about Industry 4.0, particularly the Internet of Things. And he's been doing projects that are transformative, that are building on lean instead of replacing it. When I saw the applications that he had, it was very different from what I'd read. And he truly was integrating lean and IoT in a way that was very exciting. Can you just drill down a level and were there specific tools or method? One thing, he put together a small team of people and say roughly around eight or nine and say four of them were people coming from the factory, particularly some from quality control. So they knew the processes, they knew how the factory operated, the operating system, they knew the people, and they could then put themselves in the place of the users when they created this technology. So what they were looking for were real problems where the technology can add value. One of the most obvious and one of the most, I think, prevalent today being used is in maintenance. So they're fans for this big induction oven that had to have the same temperature throughout. And these are like huge, you know, size of you know, eight feet by 20 feet. And I guess they're convection ovens. But anyway, the fans are blowing the stuff around and it has to be perfectly uniform or the parts will get ruined. So if the fans break down, then the parts are ruined. And then they have to stop the machine and restart it. And it takes hours to set it up again. And they'll lose something like $50,000 worth of production. So it's a huge deal. And it happens a, you know, a number of times, not, not every day, but you know, maybe half a dozen times in a year. What they found was that by hooking up sensors to these motors and checking vibration, checking temperature automatically, then having that run through artificial intelligence the computer could predict failure far earlier than the maintenance people realized there was failure. In one case where they, they, they had first demonstrated to the maintenance guys to win them over, the maintenance guys were convinced that the fans were fine. And they were asked, please open up the box and look at the fans. And the blades of the fans were almost disintegrated. And the sensors detected that way before the maintenance people. Now, when the maintenance people do their work, they actually have quite a bit more data than they normally would have on how the fans failed and how the, how the motors failed or whatever it was. Still, they have to do problem solving. So one interesting thing was that they discovered that the maintenance people were not really good at problem solving. You know, they had taken problem solving courses years earlier, but hadn't been refreshed. So they went back to teaching them root cause analysis problem solving. And it was really the combination of high quality problem solving plus the information. And if you think about it, all that IoT is really doing is giving you information. And what matters is what you do with the information. And there is a vision that the artificial intelligence will process the data and actually automatically adjust the equipment. But Raja, who runs this at Denso, you know, says that's, that's going to be rare for a long time. So basically what you're doing is giving 
better, richer information to people, right. in this case, maintenance people. And then Raja was saying they're getting curves and distributions that they don't understand. So they had to train them on these distributions and how to interpret them. And he said the maintenance people were becoming like junior engineers. The point was that, you know, that was just a real life case where having the technology alone wouldn't do much good. But having the technology enabling smart engineers trained in problem solving, working with maintenance people trained in problem solving, troubleshooting machines, redesigning machines, you know, everything we talk about in lean thinking, that's what makes the IoT valuable. The other interesting thing is Raja had done a lot of benchmarking and he found in the cases where he was directed, go here because they're a leader in Industry 4.0 and the Internet of Things, he would find almost no examples of the technology being used in practice. He'd find lots of people in a computer room that had really cool simulated examples. In one case, they had 50 people doing this and he had this small group and he was sort of intimidated. And he visited, this was an automotive customer. He visited the automotive customer and he couldn't find a single application that was working. And then that auto company ended up benchmarking him and the head of that group came and talked to him. And when he visited, he said, I can't believe you have real working examples. And he started to call what they had on the screen, IOT wallpaper. The difference between having the wallpaper that looks cool that you present to senior management and real working examples that were getting real results is often a big gap. What does this bring to mind for you? Interestingly enough, one of the things that comes to mind when Jeff was describing the IoT wallpaper is some company's application of lean. And so what I worry about, whether it's with technology or whether it's lean, is getting caught up in implementation for its own sake, right? So where the technology becomes the goal, right? We want to be current. We want to be you know, high tech, quote unquote, and we, you sort of chase that for its own sake. I think the same thing can be said about some companies' lean efforts, right? You know, some executive says, you know, what we need around here is a little bit more lean, right? And so they, they start up a group and they start to do lean. And, and so they sort of chase the wrong rabbit, in my view. But clearly, just like lean, this technology has tremendous potential. The areas that I'm most familiar with, of course, are in the design and development side, where things like simulation and smart CAD, 3D printing have made a huge impacts to engineers' ability to develop robust products. But it doesn't replace the responsibility of the engineer, right? And that's another worry point that I have is when we try to offload responsibility to the technology. In other words, well, the simulation said this, or my CAD error was that as opposed to really understanding first principles of design and taking responsibility yourself. So I think another worry point, in addition to the, the technology becoming the goal in and of itself, is letting the technology get in between you and the Gemba, right? Whether it's in manufacturing or whether it's in design, it's clear what the roles are and what the strategy is for implementing either lean or technology or whatever, that it's tied to a larger strategy. One thing that strikes me about Jeff's story with Raja 
is the way technology seems to be functioning as a form of vaca yoke of error proofing that they're using this kind of diagnostic capability to better understand the kind of trigger points that indicate the fans might be breaking down. It sounds like incorporating digital, digital technology into fundamental proven TPS practices is not only the safest route, but the, I guess, most expansive and the place with the most potential. I mean, what would you say are the key principles? Like, I mean, Jeff, it's, it's kind of going back to people process purpose, but, or Jim, like, what are the key principles of say LPPD that need to be front of mind when bringing in all this nifty new IOT stuff? Yes, I think generally, you know, and Jeff and I have talked about this before, I see technology's role as enabling people and, and, and process as opposed to vice versa. I think it's usually disruptive and doesn't bode well for companies when it's all about the technology and people need to, to change to meet that. But on the other hand, I think that there's clear interdependence and this is often missed as well. So when you do implement new technologies, whether it's in development or manufacturing, I think it's important to think about larger system implications, right? What are the skill sets that will be needed going forward? Jeff's example was fantastic, right? In terms of what the maintenance guys need to enhance in terms of their skill sets. Same thing in the engineering community. If you're doing more simulation, if you're doing more 3D printing, in order to move experimentation up in the process, which is a fundamental part of LPPD, right? Is experiment to learn. This can really help enable that and to do it more quickly and obviously more cheaply but you have to make sure that you have the right skill sets and you have to make sure that your process sort of allows that. Yeah. This idea of enabling, another example from the Denso plant was actually to enable the operators. And one of the systems was essentially doing X bar art process control charts. And normally you would do a process control chart. You have an upper limit and a lower limit and you're, plotting data points one by one, and then you're looking to see if there's a trend toward moving out of control. And then if there is, then you take action before it goes out of control. Okay, so you get the closed loop feedback system with the operator taking some action. And in this case, they had the process control chart being created automatically through sensors and then the computer system through the internet. And in real time, you're watching these points be plotted. And there's actually a continuous graph being created. And we walked up to one operator and Raja said, oh, look here, just a few minutes ago, it was starting to move out of control. Then the operator took action there and now it's in control again. So simply the speed in almost real time, it was within microseconds, of having the data being plotted for you so you don't have to collect it, make a note on a piece of paper. And you know, normally plants will do that occasionally because it's time consuming. So this was very efficiently giving you a picture that you could adjust in real time. Again, if the operator didn't have the skills or was not empowered to take action, then 
the technology would just be looking cool on the screen. But so again, it was a combination of the way Denzo views operators. And it reminds me of when I was writing the Toyota Way to Lean Leadership, I interviewed Mark Hogan, who was a GM executive when NUMI was launching, and he became the executive in residence at NUMI, and he learned the Toyota production system there. And he said at the time, I, so I asked him a question, what is the single most important part of the Toyota way that was different from General Motors? And he said, for General Motors, if you were to have a machine and a person, and you were to draw a circle around the process, at General Motors, you would draw a circle around the machine, and then the person was outside the circle tending the machine. At Toyota, you would draw a circle around the person, and the machine was outside the cir circle serving the person. And that image is what I saw at Denso, that the tool was enabling thinking and problem solving rather than trying to replace it. And if the company doesn't already have that, which few companies do, they don't have, it's not just a matter of telling workers they're empowered or putting them into some sort of work group, but actually developing the skills and the sense of ownership. And if they don't have that, giving them more information faster is not going to be very valuable. One interesting analogy that Jim Womack made in a piece long ago was that the characteristics of a system where it's like a finger touching a stove. You don't necessarily need everything to go back to the brain and think about that it's touching a hot stove, that there's built-in responses that immediately pull it away, that there's nerves that trigger the response at the point of touch. And it sounds like this is an, an element of the vibrant production system is that you have built in the qualities of responsive, of informed responsiveness at the point of action. And they're, they're even getting in at Denso to using a lot of iPads or, or phones where you could get that hot stove response on your phone. You know, it buzzes, it, and then they were starting to get into wearables like watches. So you're feeling and hearing that something's wrong. You look on the screen, you see immediately what the problem is, and they can take immediate action, and you can't ignore it. It just feels like the ever-present challenge with this is the greater the sophistication and power of these information systems, the greater the risk of ceding control to them as their role in the kind of process increases. How do companies maintain this sense of individual ownership and, and so forth as they are incorporating these new powerful production systems into the work they're doing. Yeah, I think the first thing is not how do they maintain the power and control of the individual, but did they ever create it to begin with? And in the traditional system, the answer is no. You haven't really done that part of lean yet. That's in the culture piece of the assessment. You haven't gotten there yet. And you see that happening? Oh, all, all over the place. That's more common than actually adopting the real Toyota way. I was thinking about companies that get excited about organizational learning, right, as part of their continuous improvement. And learning is so critical. Learning and knowledge reuse is so critical in product development. 
And right away, they want to talk about the tool and the technology that will capture their lessons and will, you know, make it easy to display it or build it into, you know, whatever. And typically, that's not what the roadblock is. The roadblocks are much more often cultural or leadership-based and whether they truly value learning or not. I think the same thing can be true for people, whether they're really a people-centric organization that's investing in their people and developing their people, all has to come before they can make the most of these technologies. If you view the technology's main goal is to eliminate the people as fast as possible, then obviously you don't want to invest in them. And very, a lot of the companies are really fascinated by the idea of a lights-out factory where there are no people. And that assumes the technology will somehow maintain itself. And then there's the other level, and Ted has gotten into this pretty heavily in the last five years or so, which is people continuously improving Kaizening automated equipment. They want to make the automated equipment better. And then when you have the IoT systems, including a user interface, Toyota would like to make that better. And that's being made better by the people on the floor who are using it. So they don't want to replace the people. Not only support the people, but they want the people to be continuously improving the technology. And that's why they sometimes will keep more people, say, in welding in in processes that other auto companies will automate because they want a certain number of people there on the floor scattered throughout the shop who are sensing, reacting, problem solving, and continuously improving. I'm struck by this technique method called Karakuri. I'm going to ask one of you guys to explain what that means and how Toyota uses it and how it relates to this topic we're discussing. So originally, that it's best known in Japan as dolls. There are these dolls kids buy that have mechanical devices built in. You build the doll, and the doll, for example, can walk by itself. And the what Toyota has been using it for is to mostly move materials without electricity using gravity and springs and mechanical devices. There was one application where on one side of the aisle, there's a machine producing something and it goes into bins. And then they have to get those bins across the aisle to another machine. And they built a Karakuri device, which would take the, the bin and move it up overhead, you know, high enough so that you can walk under it. And then it would come down to the next process and it would be oriented in exactly the right way. And they did need a small motor to go up, but other than that small motor, everything was done through gravity and mechanics. They have developed kits where they have all the components of Karakuri, like the little motors and like the mechanical devices, the springs and the little conveyors. And they have all these parts like Legos and then the operator can put them together and create a system you know, for a particular purpose. And the operators love it. There's two purposes from Toyota's point of view. One, the obvious one is that it's green <laughs> without using electricity. The less obvious one is it's really a tool for people development. It ends up encouraging very creative problem solving. And when you have a constraint like that, you can't use electricity, you're forced to think more creatively and outside the box. 
one other example of that was an engine plant in Japan where they were experimenting with, well, the goal was to bring senior workers back into the process. And the senior workers usually are not assigned to the assembly line because it takes a lot of lifting and moving and it's you toughen your body. So they wanted to see if they could create an engine assembly line that was so easy to use that even a retired person who was 70 years old could do the jobs. Okay. So the way they approached this, which was typical Toyota way, and almost nobody else would do this, is they hired back retirees and they worked with engineers to design the line. And one of the constraints was almost no electricity. So they had to create various kind of mechanisms to move stuff and lift stuff and push things out and automatically they, they did all the testing with mechanical devices and then some probes and electrical diagnostics equipment set up. But it was mostly using all your senses and then things would move to you and from you and it took almost no force and effort by the people. Then when they got, got that operating, they would bring senior people in and their task was to do Kaizen. Then they started using it as a training ground for engineers. They brought engineers from all over the world who would spend a month and a half there just working on the line and doing Kaizen to learn how to do Kaizen. Then when they got the process really simplified, it was very easy to automate parts of it using intelligent automation that a lot of these things that were being done um, by mechanically could be done with electronics. And then they would introduce that to the high-speed engine lines. And they ended up with a simpler form, cheaper form of automation and use of technology. And they were then you know, using that like Karakuri sort of line as a think tank, brainstorming, opportunity for creativity to then come up with ideas that could then be incorporated into the assembly line with the ultimate goal of having intelligent, simple automation to assist the operator and being able to use senior people who are retired because they have a labor shortage in Japan. Yeah, I thought that engine plant was amazing when we visited there, including the use of cobots. That's the first time I've seen such creative use of the small cobot technology to help enable people as opposed to robots to replace them. Jim, like what are your takeaways about the meaning of Karakori? It sounds like it's very important to frame any improvement work as an experiment and a learning opportunity. And while respecting the power of any technology to constantly keep it in perspective and, and, and keep the focus on identifying the problem and understanding it better first as a way of developing the appropriate response to it. I think just as Jeff said, the genius is in putting those constraints on to challenge the understanding of the folks involved. So if you recall, seems like a hundred years ago now, they talked about the initial visual management. A lot of companies wanted to right away go to sophisticated systems and spend a lot of money 
And oftentimes their Japanese or lean mentors would say, no, we're going to start with some flags, right? We're going to have a, a red and green flag. I mean, one of the things I love about learning from Toyota and, you know, sort of the lean community is this genius that runs through challenging and developing people, even if it is around technologies. And one of the people that we met while we were in Japan, Jeff, I can't recall his name right now, even as they brought technology into the plant, he insisted that the engineers and the operators understood the machinery. One of the things that really bothered him was this idea of, yeah, I know how to make a casting. I push this button and the casting comes out over there. And, and uh, he was um, you know, not satisfied with that answer and, uh, and wanted to make sure that they really understand uh, what it, what it, takes to, to create that. And, and again, that goes back to my point about the technology getting between you and the Gemba. Yes, yeah, so that was Mr. Kawai, who started off graduating from Toyota Technical High School. And then for some reason, Taichi Ono saw potential in him and spent a lot of time teaching him. And he spent like 50 years with Toyota. He's still there. He's the first non-college educated employee to be put on the board of directors of Toyota. And his main responsibility is education and training. You know, how do you spread this deep knowledge across, across the world? And what Jim mentioned was that, you know, he saw a problem, which was that engineers and supervisors and operators and they didn't really know what was going on inside the equipment. That was all very automated. One of the things he did, what he called my machine, where he said to the operator, this is your machine. I want you to open it up, take off a lot of these barriers so you, so you can see inside and study everything that happens in hundreds of seconds as the part gets turned into something the customer wants and identify waste in the equipment and in the way the process was set up by the vendor. And then they would come up with Kaizen ideas to eliminate wasted motion and waste movement, it allowed them to shrink the machines down. So then the operators were then talking to the vendors and saying, why don't you redesign it this way? And they would do a redesign. The other clever thing he did is he went to the supervisors of the operators and he said that the operators are gonna be studying the machine and coming up with ideas for improvement and they're gonna have a lot of questions for you so I need you to be able to answer their questions. And he actually pretended that the supervisors, of course, already knew how the machines operated, recognizing they didn't, and they would have to really study hard to keep ahead of the operators. <laughs> awesome, that's a great story. There's one other thing I wanted to add, is that part of what's going on is really a different paradigm among the producers of the technology, mostly IT software people, and then the users of the technology were people and companies trying to do jobs. And Denso uh, helped reduce this gap, for example, by having some people from the floor who then were really good at programming and they learned how to program so they could create that liaison role. But the other side of the story is that Raja had spent several years in Japan for Denso. And when he looked at where Japan was in software development and compared it to Silicon Valley, there was no comparison. 
He said, the U.S. is the center of the development of this technology. And the Japanese are way behind, including in Denso. So his, he saw his, his mission to bring this technology from Silicon Valley and MIT and the United States to Denso globally. Uh, and he did that in a way where he was integrating the existing strengths of Denso with the technology. But on the other hand, it was not the case that Denso was automatically taking advantage of the technology sitting there in Japan. They're pretty primitive and he saw a need to educate them and to become a salesman for the technology. And then he would work with vendors in the United States, even small vendors, like sometimes a, a university professor. There was one who had a neat idea for motion technology that would use cameras to observe people doing work. And then through AI would actually develop standard work in real time. And he saw tremendous potential for that, even though the professor knew nothing about TPS or standard work. But working with that professor, with people in Denso who understood TPS and standard work, they created a really great system that does a lot of the manual stuff you would do to develop standard work automatically in real time. And that's become a real important technology. So I don't wanna say, talk negatively about the importance of the software technology side because that's being developed at lightning speed. And the potential is tremendous when married with real applications and with good thinking process. Yeah, I agree. I think that collaboration is absolutely key. And I also really want to emphasize what Jeff already said, and that's that all software is not created equal. And these are huge expenditures that the business is taking on and due diligence and having a piloting focused implementation plan is crucial because the wrong technology can bring down your whole operation. The final question is just as companies assess the potential incorporation of these powerful tools, what are the principles to keep front of mind? What do they need to focus on um, kind of proactively above all else? What are the kind of key ideas? I would say the purpose, you know, what is the problem you're trying to solve? and then good problem solving. Yeah, I, I agree. I think keeping the idea of what the problem is you're trying to solve is so important, whether it's a technology application or a process application. I think collaboration that we already pointed out is crucial so that you get the right people engaged and then having an overall strategy that goes beyond just implementing the technology for its own sake. I want to thank Jeff Leiker and Jim Morgan for their time and their thoughtful conversation. Thanks also to WLAI's Emma Ripp and Pat Pancheck for their work on this podcast. Thanks above all to you, our listener. Please share any feedback you have with us at pod at WLAI.com. That's P-O-D at W-L-E-I dot com.